I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 John, the book of 1 John. Again, we did this last week. Last week we were in chapter 2. Today I want to go to chapter 5 to an old familiar friend of ours in verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. How many times, I wonder, have we heard that verse read or quoted? Or how many times has it been a part of something you read or something that somebody told you about? The victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. What a premium the Word of God puts on the little word faith, and yet it is so misunderstood, so not understood, that it has become, to most people, just a word that has a definition but has no effect on people's lives. And you have to labor this because if there's one thing that I have found in my life that the devil really fights, it's the message of faith finding a lodging place in your heart. Because the one thing, the Bible says, the one specific thing that defeats the devil is faith. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. We'll read that again in just a minute. It's resisting the devil. It's standing against the devil. It's not running from troubles and trials, but it's standing up to it and arming yourself with the word of God, which you have put in your heart, and you speak that word to the devil. And there's fear everywhere. There's apprehension everywhere. There's all the things that are normal and natural to a human body, and yet there is something about the effect of the word of God abiding in somebody's heart. Now, turn to 1 John 2 and verse 14. I said this last week about the abiding word. Now, today I'm going to talk about victorious faith. We're talking about the same subject, just a different angle. We said in 1 John 2, he said, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Strength, Christian strength, is the result of an abiding word in you. Not a memorized word, not a word you can quote, a word you can explain the definitions of, like that. That's good. But there's a lot of people who spend their life studying or praying who never win their battles and run from them. We're talking about the effect of the word living, become a living reality on the inside of you. Something that you turn to because you're convinced and persuaded that what God has told you, God will do. Now, not everybody's like that. But this is what happens when people are born again. God does something in your heart that is supernatural. It's not natural. It elevates you to a life which people don't understand. You do things because the Bible says it. Even though you don't understand how he does it, you do it because God says it. You're persuaded and convinced by something outside of yourself, something that God himself does in you, that what he said he will do. And in that way, you become strong. You're strong because you don't run. You're strong because the word that is inside of you is a convincing word to you, to you. It's not just a theological word. It's a living word. You live by it. It's an abiding word. It never goes to sleep. It never disappears. It is a living thing on the inside of you. That's why the Bible makes a point of saying that we're not to let the word slip. 
When we hear something, we're supposed to hold on to it, lest at any time this word passes you by. And you find yourself saying, you know, I remember one time hearing something about that. You know, it didn't do you any good since then because it wasn't inside of you. It wasn't a living word. You heard it, true, but it doesn't work for you because it's not a living, abiding word. So you're strong when the word of God is abiding in you. And then verse 14 says, in this way, this living word, this is how you overcome the devil. So face it, one thing the devil really dreads in your life is for this word to become real to you. And he fights you while you're listening. He fights you before you got here this morning. He does what he can to condemn your past mistakes so you won't listen or feel unworthy of anything that God says. He does whatever he can to make you feel like that it's too hard or I just can't or I'm not able, I'm not capable or look at all the people that failed. How do I know it'll work for you? He does whatever he can to keep this word from lodging itself in your heart. Even though you sing the song, though none go with me still, I will follow but he says, oh, you can't do that. And what would people think of you? You used to have such a good name. You used to be such a nice person. Now that you've got this strange religious beliefs that you have, you're so different that people can't even relate to you. You become so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, that type of thing. But if you want to be strong, this is how you do it. And I said last week that a key element of your strength or a word abiding in you is humility. Because you've got to humble yourself. First John 5, you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that's why you say goodbye to common sense and things that make sense because God gives you things to believe that don't make sense. Raising the dead. You lay your hands on the sick, they shall recover. Well, how can this be? Well, there is no natural explanation. There is no scientific way of explaining how that an ordinary person like you can lay ordinary hands on ordinary people and supernatural healing comes. The disease goes away. Their body feels better. They are loose from their infirmity. How do you explain that? But you've got to believe that. You've got to humble yourself to that. Noah's ark and Abraham, 100 years old, and Jericho's walls falling down, and Jesus raising from the dead, and the shadow of Peter healing the sick, and all the miracles of throwing an axe head in the water and it floating. You've got to believe that. You can't limit God, as we said in Psalm 78. You can't limit God and say, well, I know he's able, but he... No. You humble yourself. You submit to whatever he shows you, whatever effect it has on you by other people and their talk about you. You humble yourself to it. You live like God works miracles. You live like nothing is too hard for God. You live like if I ask anything in Jesus' name, he'll do it. You live like there is no power that can overtake me because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You live like that. This is how you act. This is how you begin to adjust your whole personality, your whole character of your life. It takes on the character of a believer. Not a church member, but a believer. You begin to be different than you ever were. You begin to change. And then our text in 1 John 5 and verse 4. He said, the victory that overcomes the world, the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. Now let's look at that verse. 
I want to make six points this morning about victorious faith from this verse. But let me look at this verse before I get to that and point out three things in verse 4. First of all, whatsoever is born of God. Now, that's usually set aside in the explanation of this verse, but let's begin there. What does it mean to be born of God? Well, in simple terms, it would be like saying this, whatever God gives birth to, whatever God causes to come to life, whatever God gives life to, whatever God causes to come forth, what does he say will happen? What will this thing he gives birth to do in life? Overcome. Overcome. And what will they overcome? The world. Everything around you that is designed to keep you from heaven, all the adventures and the fun and the games and the dreams that you're given by the world, its systems, its ideas, its opinions, its ways, everything the devil can glamorize and throw at you and say, this is what you should get. And this is how you should get it. And you can have it now and live life to the fullest. That's what you overcome. And yet, how many people like us, church boys, church girls, church members, professing faith in Christ and so on and so forth, how many people like us have become so worldly We have put such walls up against spiritual truths that unless God speaks to something that I really want, I tend to just reject it. Well, that's your opinion. Well, that's what they say. Well, I don't like that church. I'm going to some other church. My ears are itching to hear something besides the word of God. I want to hear how man explains it down on my level so that I can accept it and do it. Church is full of it. The Bible said in the last days, that's what will happen that men would seek teachers having itching ears who seek the things of this life without any opposition from God, without a conscience that is against God. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want God to understand that, you know, I can't do all that. I'm just flesh. I want a preacher to tell me that so I don't have to live such a rigid life. So they're looking for this. They're running to and fro. And the bigger the churches get, the less they talk about sin. Because sin makes people uncomfortable. It makes people unhappy. And if you're uncomfortable and you're unhappy somewhere, you don't want to come back. But whatever God gives birth to, whatever God causes to come alive, my Bible says that person will overcome the world. So, you know, when you begin to debate with yourself, well, then what about all the people who say they're born again but don't overcome the world, in fact, go back into the world? Have they been born again? See, we don't even want to talk about that. But what if I said this? Whenever God invades a human life with his presence, with the idea of making that life his life, and changing everything that was in opposition to him in that life so that it is willing to live his life, that person will overcome the world. But we've heard it like this. This is how we've always understood it. Now, God gives life to you, and then he steps back and says, now, this is what I'd like for you to do. Do your best. 
I know you're not perfect, and I know that it's hard and all of that, and not very many do, and, but, you know, just try. Or take that where I was in the beginning with this in opposition to what I just said and say this. Do you really think that when God makes his abode in a human life, that he is unable to so alter the way of that human life that it comes into agreement with him? This is what I believe, and this is going to be real narrow. This is real narrow. I believe that everybody who's born again will overcome the world, and the world will be defeated by them. Struggle, I'm sure there'll be struggles along the way. That's what a war is. A war is a struggle. It's a conflict. Two combatants fight. One must overcome the other one. Sure, there's a struggle. Yes, you fight things. But if you're born again, you will overcome. How narrow was that? But is it true? Is it true that if something is born of God, that God has given birth to somebody and done something in somebody's life, that it is an eternal, lifelong thing that happens, and that person will not only overcome the world, but that person will make it into heaven and live on God's terms? You have to agree to that because otherwise God's power is lacking. Is it not God who is at work in us, both to will and to suggest his good pleasure? Well, no, wait a minute. God is at work in us both to will and to, well, can he? Can he? Is he able? Is he able to make people overcomers? Make them overcomers? Or just suggest that they should and let them make their own mind about it? Well, we have to make up our mind to be sure we have to be in agreement with the Lord, but God does that too. I believe God takes ordinary people just like us. Takes ordinary people who couldn't find their way in a dark alley and would run if they had to go through it. And I think God steps into that life. It's just like he unzips it and climbs in it. And he zips it up and he says, I've come to make this my home. And I'm not going to leave. Because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm here forever. And I'm going to change your life. I'm going to alter the way you think because your mind's going to be renewed. I'm in here. I'm a living word. And this is the power of God. And I'm going to so touch you with the power of this word and so affect you with the effect of this word that you're going to want it. You're going to be willing to do it because you're going to want it. And then I'm going to guide you through life, through the perils and the conflicts and the difficulties and your adversities. I'm going to bring you out on the other side, and when you're done, it'll be obvious that I can say this to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And yet to all of those in the church, the ungodly, the sinners, nothing but judgment. See, it might be this morning, just for this moment, that the most important message in your life is whether or not you've been born of God, that God has given you the life, the new life you say you have, and that you are on a course to heaven, and it's a great desire of your life. Every other part of your life is affected by this. And you would scorn and reject anything that would turn you against it. Second thing in that verse 4, he said, is overcome. Now, that's what we've been talking about. The word overcome or overcometh is used twice. The first word is overcometh. It's the word nikao. 
And the second word is victory, and it's Nike. It's the same word. One is one number less than the other number in Strong's Concordance. The words essentially mean to prevail, to subdue, to conquer. And the picture is that God's people who have been defeated and conquered and servants and slaves to sin their whole life are brought out of that darkness and out of that miry clay, and they're brought into the presence of God. And God begins to order a new way of life. He orders your steps. He points you in a new direction that you've never been willing to go. You've only been a churchy person. And now something has truly happened. You've been born again. The presence of God, like it's never known it before, but it's there. It's an awesome experience. You just know that something has forever changed your life. You don't know what to do about it, but you know you're going to do something. And the first thing you begin to be aware of is that you have a foe. All those old temptations are amplified now. And you seem to know, like you've never known before, that these things will draw you back into that old life. They'll take you back to where you used to be with all your excuses you used to make for doing those old things. Back to lying, back to cheating, back to stealing, back to ugly stuff, pornography, cursing, drinking, running around, looking and watching and going with things with people you shouldn't be around. If you're not careful, you begin to realize that you can't do that anymore. Nobody's really taught you. You don't have any theology about this. You just know. Do you know what I'm saying? You just know you can't do that anymore. Even people in the world who go to church once or twice a year, they already know that Christians don't do some things, and when you as a church person do certain things, they say, yeah, those Christians. They know you're not supposed to do that. This is like Romans 1. This is a law in their heart without ever being told. They know right and wrong. But with you, something is different. You now have your enemy in focus. You don't really know much about him. You're not aware of all of his ways, but you know that there's something sinister about things out there that I used to live around. I can't do that anymore. And the more you quit doing things you used to do, the more friends you lose. They weren't friends at all. You're drinking buddies. You're running buddies or girls. You just know you can't do it anymore. You can't laugh at those stories and jokes anymore. You can't even tell them anymore. Why? Because God has changed you on the inside. Everything is different. And then he says the victory that overcomes the world is your faith. Faith is just a word in the church. It describes what group you're with. You're a Baptist, a Baptist faith, you're a Methodist faith, or the independent, whatever we're called, or some name of a church. That's what faith means. Or to many people, to have faith means that you have prayed or you teach a Sunday school class or you go to church every week and therefore you've got faith. You don't overcome the world. You don't even resist the devil. But you've got faith. That's because you're deceived. Faith is a force. It's a choice that God gives you to make, a choice that puts you in agreement with God. It's what faith is. Let me define it like this. The biblical word, the New Testament word, faith, is a willingness on your part to take God at his word. That's one. To take God at his word. What does that mean? Well, 
What does God say? Now, he says a lot, but what have you heard God say? You might not have heard everything he said, but you heard something. That's the part of the whole message that God spoke to you. Now, for that word to become living and powerful and abiding, you take that word and you make it your own and you count on it. That's the second thing. A willingness to take God at his word and to count on God to do what he said. Now think of the several thousand things that God has promised to do that Christian people don't believe it. God said he would bless you when you go out and, and when you come in. He said he would heal your body. You can't find a handful of Christians in any church that believes that. They acknowledge that with their mind. They have mentally agreed to that. Well, that's what the Bible says and God can do that. But that's not faith. That's just agreement with the principle. God has, I read where he did, and I know he can. And so just subscribing to the power that is about God does not mean you're tapping into it, it just means you acknowledge it. But when the pain comes and the problem comes and you say, I'm gonna count on God to take care of this, I'm willing to trust God with my body and my life. That's when people get concerned about you. That's when the church crowd starts getting on your case. Because we don't mind you talking about it or singing about it. He's all I need. And when it comes time to show that he's all you need and you show that, boy, people get all excited. They really do. We want you to sing the right songs, the right words. We want you to preach or to preach sermons. That's what we hire him to do. We just don't want you to live like it's true. Don't think that it's going to work just because you said you believe it. Just like healing, sometimes God may not want to heal you. It may not be his will to heal you. Until you read in the Bible, one of the very first prayers that Jesus taught is, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. What do you think you'll be on the other side? Will your limbs be good? Will your mind, your whatever your affliction was that you're willing to accept in this life, will it be different on the other side? then why don't you fight the good fight of faith and make application of the word in this life so that it will be the way he wants it to be in heaven? All oh, the opposition. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been preaching for a long time, and I know, I know what turns the faucet off. Even in some places like this, not all of them. You start telling people that God will do what he said he would do. I don't care who doesn't trust him and who doesn't believe that. The Bible is true. Your faith doesn't make it true. Your faith counts on it as being true. Because that's what faith does. I'm going to count on that to be true. <laughs> May I use my pop machine again? When you put your money in the pop machine, you can't make it work. You're counting on that thing to work. You're so confident that it's going to work because of your association with it and watching other people use it, that you put your money in and you anxiously anticipate a cold drink coming out of that thing. I know there's times it doesn't do it. That's what the dents in the side of that thing for, where people kicked it and beat it. But you have faith. You go to a doctor's office, he tells a woman, all right, take your clothes off, and she will. They would today. I mean, yeah, because he said so. Your faith taps into something you're really convinced of. 
He gives you a prescription. He examines you, thumps and feels, takes a picture, then he writes on it here a prescription, gives it to you. It costs a lot of money, and you can't read it. You wouldn't understand what those things were, but you take it to the man who can read it. You hand it to him. He goes in the back, does all of this, fills up a bottle, hands it to you, and you pay him for it. And you don't know what it is in this world, not even a clue what you're putting in your body. And you'll take it faithfully every two hours because you believe. See, faith in the world is the same force as faith in God. It's still an act on your part to trust in something. We're willing to trust whatever people in this world tell us because the world really has that much of a grip on us. And if things don't agree with the world, we're unwilling to do it. And so we come to God. He says, this is what I will do. Here's 8,000 promises. I will bless you when you go out. Bless you when you come in. I'll bless your marriage. I'll bless your children. I'll bless the fruit of your lawn. I'll bless everything you do. Trust me and I'll do it. And because we're not convinced he will, we surround ourselves with all kinds of insurance and retirement systems, everything that we can because we're not sure that he'll do this and therefore we don't want to come up empty at the end of our life because we're not really sure that he will do what that book you paid a whole lot for says he will do. We don't know anybody that has received from it, therefore we tend to draw back. And fear takes over. And yet the psalmist said he's delivered us from some of us. He has. As I've said before, you know, you come down to the last third of your life. All the young years are gone. I mean, the first and second phase is over. You're on the third phase. You have no retirement. I doubt the government will much longer. And all the gloomy things that the devil can throw in your mind are the very things you must overcome by turning to the word of God and quoting it back to the devil. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory. That's your weapon. That's why you don't fret. That's why you're not scared. That's why without all the health insurance that you have today, you don't walk around afraid you're going to have an accident or, you know, you're getting old, you might fall down and hurt yourself. You don't even think like, you don't even allow those thoughts in your mind because that's not what God taught us. God has taught us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him and he will direct our steps, not our falls. God said he would take care of us. Bonnie and I, many years ago, back in the late 60s, decided we would live like this on the basis of a single word that has become an active force in our life by definition. We have maintained, held together, received grace from God to help in time of need, and have lived a truly happy life. The message I'm about to preach to you now, I preached back in the early 80s. I'm going to show you that nothing has changed. So you say, well, you went back to the archives. I dug it out. Six points. Number one, your faith is God's guarantee of victory. I'm talking about your faith, not the preacher's faith, not that group you call to pray for you, not elders, not 
anybody, he said, the victory that overcomes the world is even your faith. Personally, you. You say, well, I don't know that I have much faith. I think my faith is about the size of that. You know what Jesus said about a grain of mustard seed? What did he say? If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, he goes on to say, nothing will be impossible to you. We know that all things are possible with God. Luke 1.37 says so. And he turns it around and says to you that if you believe what I'm saying, if you believe in God, he said, nothing shall be impossible to you. Well, why don't you run down to the hospital and empty all the hospitals out and heal all the sick? Because I can't. Not even Jesus tried that. The man at the gate called beautiful, he left that one to Peter. How many times did Jesus walk by the same man? How many times, you suppose, in three years, he walked by the same man? He kept on going. You can't empty the hospital. That takes God's anointing to do that. You can't just work miracles whenever you want to to impress people or to prove something. It was the devil that said, throw yourself down from this pinnacle of the temple. I stood there and looked at it the other day when I was over there. He said, throw yourself down from here. Because, you know, he tried to quote the 91st Psalm. Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord. I don't have to prove anything. I have to live according to what I've seen. When it comes time for something to happen, I have to wait on God and trust God to do that. But we're talking about your faith. The faith that you have this morning sitting there. You're getting up and taking a shower, shave, and bathing faith. The faith, you well, I better do this or else. You believe things, so you do things. Faith is an act of your will. It's a choice you make. It's a choice you make to count on God to do what he said. You live by faith. All of us this morning, as you've heard before, everybody in this room is where you are right now because of the choices you've made in this life. Whatever inspired you to make them, whatever inspired you to live the lifestyle you live or have the attitude you have, it was a choice that you made, and that's the basis of your faith. You believe that if I run around with that girl or I had an affair with that man, I would. I, so that's what you believe. That's what you did. If I can just take this credit card and cha-ching it enough, I'll fill my house with so many good things. Cha-ching. That's what you believe. Then five years later, as I talked to one the other day of a $20,000 credit card bill, didn't even know what he spent it on. What a fool the devil has made of people. These dreams evaporate when reality hits. And the most, to me, the most real thing that I can think of this morning is the existence and the presence of God. And if he is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do, then I'm going to count on him to do for me what he said he would do. Because he didn't write this word to the world. He wrote this word to you. A natural man doesn't receive this. It's ours. And this is where my faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Faith is a guarantee of victory. Let's see if we can prove this. Jesus said to Peter, remember the time in Luke 22, verse 31 to 32? Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, the devil hath desired thee that he may sift thee as wheat. He said, I have prayed for you, Peter, Jesus said. I have prayed for you because the devil's going to sift you. I'm not going to stop this. You're going to go through this. It's part of life. You're going to go through this, and you're going to be tempted to give up, quit, or feel like you failed. It's no longer working for you. God's let you go, so why bother? 
Because most people do. He said, the devil's going to sift you. But I prayed for you. Remember what he prayed? That your faith fail not. What faith? Your willingness to count on God to do what he said he would do. You got to have a word. You can't have faith without a word. You don't just dream up something and expect God to do it. God honors his word, not your dreams. You got to find what he said. You got to take up time somewhere in your life to read this book or listen to it. When you hear something that you like, you got to read it again to be convinced of it. Faith is a matter of the heart. It's something that God puts there. It's not a matter of your mind. You can memorize it and you can quote it and still be afraid of it. But when it's in your heart, it becomes a living thing. It's just not a mental thing. It's a living thing. So you have to read it, saturate yourself with it, or as Psalm 1 says, you meditate on it, and this word begins to take its force and its effect. And again, that's one thing the devil dreads. Because once that word produces faith in your heart, the devil is a marked enemy. And he knows he cannot keep God from doing what God said he would do when you believe it. And it puts you over. It makes you the victor. 1 Peter 5. Would you turn to that one now? Because that's close to 1 John 5. We can go back to where we started easy. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and verse 9. He said, be sober. And be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he can devour. Now, do you suppose if you're born again, God's going to make you aware of your enemy? The New Testament speaks a whole lot about our enemy and who's against us. Here he simply says, your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he can devour. That person who doesn't listen to the word, who gives up easy, throws fits easy, has an anger problem, has a spending problem, an eating problem, a drinking problem, and doesn't even resist it, doesn't even try to stop. Just give in to it. Well, they go to church. But there's no effect of it. You can't tell that there's a, a word living in them. And the devil knows. He goes about saying, I'm going to wear this bunch out there. I'm going to wear you out. I'm going to cause this to happen. You're going to hit every red light in Louisville, and the people in front of you are going to just barely take off. And I want you to sit there and stew, and boy, I fight this. I talk to people, and sometimes I have to repent. Come on. Uh, Instead of saying, praise the Lord. I don't know anybody does it like that. That's kind of soft. But anyway, you resist. You fight. You deal with it. You don't just let things sit there and go. Because the devil's looking for you. He's looking for that person who struggles all the time. He never leaves you alone. He doesn't say, well, he's struggled enough. Not even God says he's struggled enough. Jesus said to Peter, I pray for you that your faith won't fail. What if his faith failed? Well, Peter wouldn't have been who he was in the Bible. I mean, it's Peter who sunk in the sea. Didn't he sink on the sea? And Jesus said to him, oh, you of little faith? I guarantee you between that moment on the sea and when he wrote these words, he improved. 
because he saw the power of it. He walked on the water on a word, just a word faith. Because when he began to sink, Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Because the devil made him see what he was doing. He said, whoa, you wonder how deep it is? Down he went. He said, well, that's hard. He didn't say it was easy. But notice in verse 8 again, if you're still there. Be sober and be vigilant. Pay attention. It means to be watchful. Now, let's add this to the thing about faith. If you're walking by faith, you are obviously necessarily cautious. You are careful. You're not a loose cannon. There's something about the way God works inside of people, people he works in, the ones he does work in. There's something about these kind of people who become sober and vigilant and cautious and become careful about what they hear and may begin to evaluate things and decide maybe this is not, I shouldn't do this. You know, this might not be good. Some people think we're spooky. But Jesus said, be careful. Didn't he say, watch and pray? How many times does the Bible say in the New Testament, say, take heed? You better be careful because the devil has a bullseye on your willingness to trust God. And if he can throw you off base and then condemn you for it, he'll defeat your faith. Because you feel like, well, I can't use it now because look what I just did. But notice in verse 9, two words. He said, resist the devil. The word resist comes from two words. It means against. Antihistami. Anti means to resist. And histami means to stand. To stand against. Against to stand. That means this. Now, when the devil comes around with sassy kids, trouble in the home, money, job, future, the neighbor next door, physical things, mental things, whatever the devil does, all things of whatever the devil does, he tells you this is what you do about it. You stand against it. Let me tell you something. I'm watching too many people while I'm standing here right now at this time of life. Too many people have quit overcoming. They quit fighting. I'm not saying you have, but if it applies to you, I'm just saying this is not a time in life just before the Lord comes to quit overcoming. God's people by nature are overcomers because their nature is the divine nature that God puts in you. We have to overcome. Remember Revelation 21.8? He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Well, the meaning is obvious. If you don't overcome, you inherit nothing. But Lord, we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that. And Jesus said to those religious people, I never knew you. There's a life you live in which it's on God's terms. And God's terms is always to prevail and never to flee. Never to give up, never to give in, never to cave in, but to fight the good fight of faith. The word resist is coupled with the word steadfast in verse 9. Resist him like this. In this way, stand against the devil. And the word means stable and firm and solid as opposed to liquid. Figuratively, it means to be firm, strong, and immovable. 
That's why people call others and say, we need to do something about him. He won't go to a doctor or he won't take this or he won't buy or he won't go borrow or something. He's going to lose everything. He's going to die. Everybody gets concerned about you. And you're just being tested. And the whole world's getting to watch you be tested. And you look like a fool. Because you could get rid of your headache and one aspirin and it's gone. Duh. The difference is, I found this to be true. You trust God and say, I'm not going back that old way. I'm going to take you at your word. You said your word is medicine to my flesh in Proverbs 4.22. I'm going to do that. And I found now 40 years later, I don't have headaches. I don't have them anymore. I don't need the antecedents anymore or whatever they call it today. I don't need it. I was just on a trip to Israel. I was with some good people, some very nice, caring people. And I'm not used to hearing people talk sick. You know, we don't sit around and talk about, oh, you better go get your, you know, you better take yours and how many pills you take. And there's just, I'm talking about every day you get this many. I'm not used to that. And I'm around people that have been Christians for 30, 40 years. And they have never gotten beyond this. And I ask myself, because I'm not better than anybody. You know that. We're not perfect people. We just happen to be willing, as much as we know, just trust the Lord. I think, why, after all these years, why are they bound to that kind of a lifestyle when they could be loosed from it? It's because either they've never been taught or they've been afraid of it. And I'm sure if I taught in one of their churches what I'm saying this morning, we've probably already stopped the meeting. People get angry when you start talking about the fact that, well, what I've said is true. Because it becomes personal. Are you saying that I'm not? I might be. Might be. Chances are I probably did. And I imagine I was. But it's not designed to hurt anybody. It's not designed to offend people. I'm telling you that God has a way he wants us to live. I'd rather you cry now than cry later. Because there is a judgment day coming. Either get right now or lose it later. Sometimes we have to be awakened out of our sleep. That's why Paul, the New Testament, uses the word warn so much. I warn every man I meet because there's things that people need to be awakened from. It's not the way God gave us to live, the way Christians live today. I watch Christians carrying signs protesting this and protesting that. Or Christians in the same church, one over here is a Democrat and one over here is a Republican, hollering at each other, calling each other names, or finding dirt on each other. Where in all the world do you get that kind of lifestyle in the Bible? In what way is Jesus glorified by that? Think, what in the world do people, where are they getting all of this? You simply set the word aside and you have faith in the systems of man. And that's the way it works. Point two. Not only is faith God's guarantee of victory, but you have to make sure that your faith is in the word. You have to make sure that your faith is in the word. God honors his word, not your opinions. There are a lot of biblical subjects that are difficult to deal with, divorce and remarriage, speaking in tongues, 
the second coming of Jesus. Politics, a lot of difficult subjects to deal with. And I have found that in talking to people about this, many of them, to substantiate their view or opinion, say this, well, don't you think? Well, I think a lot of things. Well, do you think it's fair? Don't you think? It doesn't matter what we think. This is what we're supposed to think. So, well, it's not clear yet. Well, then we're on the wrong subject right now. We need to study it, seek out the Lord, and make it a big deal in our life because I want to know what this means. How should I feel about politics? How should I feel about things in this world, marriage or the death sentence or Christmas or anything else? What am I supposed to do with it? Am I just supposed to have an opinion on it and call that my faith? Am I just supposed to be like, well, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. You go down to the, some of these little country restaurants where the good old boys are, especially at noontime during deer season. I'll tell you one thing, and everybody has their own view of opinion. Well, I'll tell you one. I don't believe, but I'll tell you one thing. There's another word that goes in there. And they all, the good old boys, and they just laugh and pat each other on the back and go home. It's just country. It's the way we live. And people do religion the same way they do Christianity. They say, well, I'll tell you one thing. I know that preacher talked this morning about this, but I'll tell you one thing. I think a man's nuts if he needs to get something done with his body and he won't go do it. I think he's crazy. So you come around and say, well, now, wait a minute. That ain't what the Bible says. I, well, I'll tell you one thing. That's their religion. They really think that because they have a sincere opinion about something or a logical or reasonable opinion about something, it makes a lot of sense that that surely is what God will honor and they can have faith in that opinion. And what if the Proverbs that says twice, there is a way that seemeth right unto man, Proverbs 16? And yet that's good enough because they don't go to church enough. They haven't heard the word enough to even know that we're bound to the word of God. That's what Martin Luther said when his life was right on line. He said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot change. God help me. And he barely escaped from that crowd. They would have killed him. My conscience is bound to the word of God. Not your opinions, not logic, not reason not intellectual advanced people, not the smart people of the world. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world because at the end of all their opinions and their wisdom and their higher learning, they perish. Now you tell me what advantage was with all the gathering of information and writing all your books and becoming a world-renowned this. When you die, you perish. What did you get? Then here's simple people like us. I'm making me. I know you're not. You're complicated. I'm simple. Simple people like us who are reduced to the level of the Word of God. Thank God I learned to read. We just simply say that, and the world thinks we're fools. You're giving up all the things you could have in life. Look what you could have now if you would just. You could have this. You could drive it. You could be, go, do, have. And here you are saying, well, I'm going to count on the Lord to do the what? Oh. 
That's how we've chosen to live, and that's what God honors. And in the end of this journey, it is well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord that were prepared for you from the foundations of the world. You went to heaven. You think that's a good thing? I do too, to go to heaven. To live in such a way that your rejects, if you were a department store, you'd be the discount house. You're what nobody wants. Flawed fabrics. And when you got through, you went to heaven. God honors his word, not man's versions, not man's opinion. Would you just briefly turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. I want you to follow me. Don't take my word for anything, especially for what I'm about to say here. 2 Timothy 4 3, for the time will come. We're there now. This is the time of life when this is really, really true. It's always been true, but it's really evidently true in a deeper sense now. For the time will come, the Bible says, when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. They will endure opinions and ideas and reason, but they will not endure sound doctrine. But they will, after their own lust... They will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. We go to the nice place where I always feel good when I come out of there because I don't feel condemned. You heard that? You go to that place, you feel condemned. How about convicted? Let's change the word condemned to convicted. And conviction has with it the idea of guilt. Guilt is something that hangs on you and won't go away. It's a word that says you're wrong, you deserve to be punished. It's guilt. If I can go somewhere I can get rid of guilt, and you can't, then I feel better about about myself. I can still be me. I can wear this cute little nifty thing I've got. I can hang out and be bad, violate everything that I know is right about being meek and kind and humble that Jesus taught, because I go to a place where, I'll tell you one thing, but you get in my way, I'm going to pop you right in the jaw. People who like it that way, you don't find that in the Bible. Can you imagine a big old bad looking somebody having to turn his big old bad looking cheek? Not to be kissed. Because he's a Christian and all the other big old bad looking ugly people around him making fun of him. Ha ha ha, we ought to all whip him. It's amazing how you must humble yourself and take a lot of guff from this world that you used to be a part of when you humble yourself to God. And the reason you do it is because your faith is in this word. Not in your feelings. I'll tell you one thing down at the store. I'll tell you one thing. That Bible talks about turning your other cheek, but it doesn't say what to do after they hit it. If I turn my cheek and somebody slaps it, I'm giving him two or three more of my own. Where'd you read that? It's just my opinion about it, buddy. That's the world we live in. An opinionated, self-taught world. They shall turn away their ears from the truth. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 4, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. You know what fables are? Fables are man's tales. One dictionary defined fables like this, commonly rendered as a tale or a fable or that which is fabricated by the mind in contrast to reality. It is the word from which mythology comes. Muthos. 
myths. You know the Bible calls your opinions myths? He calls your good logic and good reason about religious matters when it's not founded on the word. You know he calls that a myth? And that people today literally are turning from the truth because they don't want to endure what God says and they're turning to myths and they're living a myth. What will they do? Jeremiah said in chapter five, the last verse, he said, what will they do in the end? My people love to have it so. They hear the word, but they won't do it. They love it. Then the question, but what will you do in the end? Because when the end comes, it comes without announcement. It just comes like that, suddenly, and it's over. Thirdly, these are shorter. They're getting shorter now. Victorious faith, thirdly, has to do with settling all issues in your mind to trust the Lord because an unsettled mind is an uncertain mind, and your mind is a battlefield. It's where the devil projects his thoughts. If you're a new creature in Christ, the inner man on the inside is what you feed with the word. This is where the word is hid. Thy word have I hid in my heart. The mind, however, and the head is still the hard drive of your body. It's where your will is. And your will, though you have a lot of word inside of you, your mind can show you all the reasons why if this doesn't work, you're going to die. If this doesn't work, you're going to lose. If this doesn't work, she's going to leave you. If this doesn't work, you're going to be alone. If this doesn't work, you're going to lose your kid. If this doesn't work, you're going to have to go to jail. If this doesn't work. And the fear of that. God says, it will work. Your mind says, yeah, well, we don't know that. How do you know your mind has to be renewed? It has to be renewed. Your mind was trained by the world, in my case, for 28 years. When I was a school teacher, a basketball coach, and living that kind of a life, I did what I was trained in the world through college. Oh, God, forgive me. But all of those years, when I came to the Lord, all of that didn't just go away. It became an opposition in my life. That's what the devil would use to try to show me how illogical it is to take God at his word. And there was this battle between my mind and my spirit. Didn't the psalmist once say, O soul, why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God? Can a man talk to himself? Now, if you talk to yourself out loud a lot, well, you might need to come in the office. But I talk out loud a lot. I debate with myself. I argue with myself. How can this, what I'm going to believe, how can that be true? If I can answer my own questions, I can answer yours. I just debate it. Argue back and forth with it. I just make a decision, a conscious decision in my mind. I am going to trust the Lord. In spite of the pictures I'm getting and this long night, and it's a dark night and you're home by yourself and there's surely somebody else in that house with a knife and a gun and big scissors on his hands and he's going to wear you out. <laughs> now he's not in there, is he? But your mind says he is. And your mind is a battlefield. Oh, one night I was home not too terribly long ago and there was a noise in my garage. There was somebody out there trying to get me. So I got up and I went to the garage. It was too distinct a noise for nothing to be out there. Took a deep breath, uh, opened the door. Mm, 
and uh, flipped on the light. Nothing but the car, so I shut the door. Whew, sit down and heard it again. Heard it again. More distinct, something fell. Now this time it's serious. This time it's serious. I wish I could say I got up, got my Bible, and I turned to a couple of verses and I opened the door and I said, I announced to this garage and whoever, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But I looked out there again and to my right there was two little beady eyes, a little raccoon about that long. In my garage. He was a little booger man in my garage. I had to get rid of him and get him out of my garage. But that's what the devil does to you. He makes you hear things that aren't real. In this case it was, but he makes you think things that aren't true. This is, you know, you coughed and you had a pain here. Uh-oh, now that. Now that came from the lower region of that left lung. And this time, down in that third lobe, it's serious this time, buddy. This is a big one. All you did was cough. 1954, I started this the other day. I coughed reading the paper about the dangerous signs of cancer. One of them is persistent coughing, and I had a cold. I coughed until I had a lung operation when I was 20. They removed half of a lung. Just a normal cold because I was captured by the fear of what this was, and I couldn't get it off my mind. It stayed with me all through college, coughing up blood, trying to play ball, and all these kind of things. Just, I thought I was dying. I was convinced I was dying. I'd go to church knowing I was dying. My mother sent me $10 a week. That was a lot of money. That was good for $1 a day in college. Do something with. I'd go to church. I'd always put a dollar every Sunday morning. I'd put a dollar in church paying, trying to prolong the day of my death. Because I had faith I was dying. I'm just saying that the mind is a battlefield. It's what the devil throws at you. It's what the, in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, the Bible said the devil beguiled Eve. He distorted the picture, and he made it sound okay, even though it was wrong. He does that to you and me. Tries to. If this word isn't living in you, he can do that. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, he said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God. What are our weapons? It's the word of God. It's what Jesus used. It is written, it is written, it is written. It casts down imaginations, he said in verse 5. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And the devil is free to shoot arrows at your mind all through this life. You're not going to make it. This won't work. You're going on a diet. You can't lose weight. You're trying to gain weight. You never gain weight. You're ugly. You're fat. You're skinny. You're pretty, whatever. They wouldn't have a problem with that, I'm sure. But all the things that the devil tells you that tries to make you hopelessly despairing, you fight that. You fight it. You overcome it. You're not going to be a slave to that. I will not surrender myself to my mind's message because the word of God says, and then find out what it says, and then quote it. Because fourthly, you got to make up your mind to fight and not cry. Make up your mind to fight. Quit letting things happen and say, oh, I don't know what's wrong with him. I don't know why. Just go to town. Fight. 
Every child in this room is worth fighting for. Every little baby is worth fighting for. The devil wants their minds. He wants their life. He wants to put them in the riot crowds that burns down cities because they want a ball game. What an age. Your team won, so they burnt the city up. I don't get it. But somebody raised all them little boys. I asked my wife all the time. I said, that little boy have a mama? It might be a big boy. I said, did that boy have a mother? She said, all of them do. Well, somewhere in this child's life, something didn't click. And the devil was able to snatch them away. from. And they don't go to church. You know that. They quit when they get old enough because whatever they're hearing didn't work and they didn't believe what they saw. And so they quit and the devil won. Folks, fight for your children. Fight for your family. Spend a little time in the morning if you're right with God and lay your family before the Lord or your grandchildren too. Put them out there as a treasure. These are important to me. I want all of these to be in heaven. I want them all to be citizens. I don't care who's made mistakes and who's fallen. I want you to do whatever you got to do, Lord. I'm unwilling to let them go. It's a lot of you probably in this room this morning that are in here because somebody wouldn't let you go. Somebody prayed for you and held on to you because you were a treasure to somebody. A lady years ago in Lexington crying, God, don't just can't take any more of this. You know how you do that. Just can't take any more. I said, what's the problem? I said, my daughter and she is just, and she won't, and she's growing up, and she wants now to do the makeup routine and the little, you know, she wants to get out and, you know, she's what, 11? <laughs> and she won't do this and won't do that. And I've never had this trouble with her before. So we talked about some other things. And I said, finally, I said, what would you do? Because, you know, she's a pretty tough lady. As far as, you know, her way she is when everything's going right. And so I said, what would you do if God opens your eyes and you could see in a realm you've never seen in before, and there you saw your little girl and a couple of demonic forces around her just wearing her out and making her ugly like this, what would you do? She said, oh, I, I just... I said, would you fight or would you sit there and say, look what the devil's doing to my little girl? <laughs> would you do that? Oh, I'd fight them. I'd roll my sleeves up and I think she might have used a bad word. They weren't very old in the Lord died her then. And I think she said, I'd do things. I said, why don't you do it now? It's in the spiritual realm, isn't it? What did he say? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Fight the good fight of faith. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. You can't see the devil, but you can see what he's doing. He's doing it to your kid, and you're sitting here crying about it. Why don't you fight? Why don't you treasure and value the worth of this child as being your child the way they should be? Why don't you get the Bible armed in your mouth? Why don't you fight? Quit giving in to it. Quit laying down and letting it quit, you know, the money, the job, this or that. Quit. Take that ignorant phone and hide it or hang it. And quit asking everybody what you should do and find out what this book says you ought to do. 
and then fight. Draw your sword. The weapons are the sword and the shield of faith. It quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked and surrounds your family and your children with this shield, knowing that it works because God said it works. Fight! Well, fight. Come to the end of your life. The end of this war and be able to say this, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. What do you mean? I have kept the faith. That's what the fight was all about. Will I stand and trust God and believe that this will work? Or will I sit back and say, I don't know if it'll work or not. It hadn't worked yet and I doubt if I can. Who am I? I'm not worthy. Or will you do that? If you're doing that, listen to me, in a nice, kind way, you're wasting your time being here this morning. If you're not going to fight, you're going to get finally discouraged and you're going to quit. I mean that with all my heart. You're either going to fight and honor God by doing it, or you're going to get so discouraged in these late hours that you're going to walk away. Throw your hands up in there and say, oh, look, I'm just going to take my chances. That never works. Fight. Closing. Last point. When trouble comes and difficult days come, encourage yourself in the Lord. That's what David did at Ziklag in the Old Testament when he went out, defeated an army, and came home, and all of his possessions, his wives, his children, everybody's family had been carried off, and they burned their camp down. They found them later and got it all back. But David was so discouraged that people wanted to stone him with stones. And the Bible said David apparently got off by himself, and he sat down, and he began to encourage or strengthen himself in the Lord. How do you do this? We all need to do this because our battles are continuous. Let me point you to three or four verses. Psalms 46 and verse 1. Psalm 46 and verse 1. Now, there are so many verses like this in the Bible. This is just one. You sit down. You find your good, quiet space away from all the hustle and bustle of this world, all the small talk. And begin to read verses like this. Now listen to this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake and the swelling thereof, Selah. God is our very present help in time of trouble. Just reading that made some of you feel good because it's the word of God. And if you couldn't find out, we sang one this morning. Was it Psalm 3? Many are they that rise up against me, but thou, O Lord, art a shield unto me, the glory and the lifter of my head. God will take care of me. How about this one, Psalm 28, verse 8? The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. He's the saving strength of his anointed. Or how about this one? Isaiah 41, what a classic verse. Fear thou not, we sing this song. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Well, if God be for you doing that, who could be against you? 
Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, forlorn, or cast down, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Listen, I will help you. Listen more. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Faith is the victory. The world is a place where we apply it. We won't need it in heaven. You need it here. Fight the good fight. God help us. Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Reward us this morning for being here with a hearing ear. For the power of your word to take its roots in our lives. That we become convinced of its truths. That it becomes an abiding force and strength in our life. To where we're no longer afraid that our fear of you is greater than our fear of the consequences of this world. Ask you to bless these people before whom I stand this morning, all the needs that are here. May they find your word to be a treasure. May the entrance of your word this morning give light to make us stand upright on our feet, to pull up our shield and draw our swords and face our enemy and fight. We will prevail because you strengthen us. You make us to stand. You order our steps. You keep us from falling. You are our victory, our very present help in time of trouble. Let us rejoice in that. Let that be real to us, I ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.